This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 18 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. So I headed to Washington, D.C. to speak with Mexican chef Christian Arabien about the process of opening up his brick-and-mortar restaurant, Amparo Fondita. He's currently going through the process of building it and trying to find funding for the restaurant. So there's a lot of talk about what it takes and some of the challenges to get a restaurant backed by investors. We also talk a lot about Mexican cooking, something I personally love. I was really happy to get Christian on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Have a great week. All right. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. This is Chris. I've come down to Washington, D.C. to speak with a, a special guest I'm excited to talk to today. So why don't you go ahead and give yourself a little intro. Who are you uh, and what do you do? Uh, my name is Christian Irabian. Um, I am a Mexican chef, 20-year uh, D.C. resident, and in the process of trying to open a restaurant. Emphasis on the trying. Yeah. So how long has that process been going? Uh, we're about 16 months in. Wow. 16 months. When did the, when did the vision first start for the restaurant? Cause I know a little bit about it. It seems like it's been a little while that you've wanted to be doing this. Yeah. I think the vision started long, long time ago. Um, well over, well over eight, nine years. Um, it's taken many, many different forms, uh, to what it is now, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a process of visualizing and putting pen to paper and then actually taking actionable um, steps to so, get going. So what's the name of the restaurant? The name of the restaurant is Amparo Fondita. Um, Amparo is Spanish for shelter, and it's also my mother's name and my grandmother's name. Um, and Fondita is just a name that in Mexico we give to small neighborhood eateries. I had the opportunity to check out your pop-up that you did over at District Space. How long ago was that? Was that a year ago? A little over a year ago, I think you did? That was a little bit over a year ago. It was summer of 2018. Summer of 2018, yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that go for you over there? Uh, really well. Surprisingly well. I think unexpectedly well. <laughs> Uh, we had a space to work in. Uh, it was the first time where we had a kitchen that was uh, stable enough to be open for longer than a few hours um, and tables and chairs and a bar. And we were able to take the concept and the vision and put it out for people. And it had an amazing reception. Is there a world where if it didn't go well, you would have maybe not thought about continuing the process of opening a restaurant? Or would you have just kind of stuck to your guns and pushed ahead making changes? Well, I think by virtue of existing in the restaurant world, um, when things go wrong, I think it only makes me want to do it more. Um, I think one thing that I was taught and learned in kitchens growing up is that if it doesn't hurt, it's probably not working. So, um, it's good advice. 
so yeah, I don't know if it, if we would have had a full on failure, I think it would have been a moment of reflection, stepping back, figuring out what went wrong and getting back to it. So it makes you want to open a restaurant. I mean, it's not easy. I see you kind of like looking around right now, thinking about that. I mean, in, in DC, when there's so many opportunities to be a chef somewhere else, why do your own thing and why now? Um, why now? Because, um, I think much like everything in life, I think you start doing things when you start feeling like you're ready to do them. Um, I, it's taken me uh, quite a while to get to where I am right now through a long process of learning opportunities and, uh, failures and accidents and just life in general. Um, but I think getting to where I am right now, I, I needed to feel like I was ready to do it. And I hadn't felt that until we started doing this. Um, but, and secondly, why this, uh, it's because very much out of a selfish point of view is, uh, when I go out to eat and I want Mexican food, there's not really anywhere that I, I feel like I could go get the things that I want to eat. Um, at least on a regular basis that's approachable and that has the items on the menu that I would like to eat that aren't necessarily just the template menu items that you see in every Mexican restaurant across the country. Is there a reason why it seems to be so homogenous? I mean, I find that you go out and everyone's got the same menu items and I'm not really excited about a lot of the Mexican food I'm seeing out there. I mean, you obviously have a couple cool places in DC, um, but for the most part, it seems like they're almost interchangeable. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't know if it's a human condition or an American condition, um, but people like to pigeonhole things. It's a lot easier to digest when you know that when you go into a place, you're going to get the, you're going to be able to get the rigatoni in red sauce and meat, or if you're going to go um, into a Greek place that you are going to be able to get the tzatziki and the lamb. Um, or if you're going to go into a Mexican restaurant that you're going to be able to get the carnitas taco. I think it's the innate necessity for people to identify and feel familiar with what they're getting. Um, but to a certain extent, we feel that it's, it stunts the ability of cuisines and cultures to be able to extend further because there's no there's no room for growth right if you're just making the same five things everywhere yeah which also faces an, an interesting challenge of if we do this is anybody going to come right <laughs> so well and you know not not everyone's a chef i mean you're definitely a chef and coming from a chef background you know how many people are coming here from say mexico and it's just kind of family cooking but they're not coming at it from that chef angle. I mean, just because you come from a place doesn't mean you're necessarily best suited to be cooking the food and selling it in a professional setting. But, you know, to me, it feels that way. A lot of times I go in places and it just feels like it's basic, maybe isn't the word for it, but you know, it's like, well, I feel like you just opened a can of pre-made refried beans and are just kind of phoning it in here. Yeah. I think people like to play it safe. I think, um, I think it's easy to try to play it safe and try to exist in your comfort zone. And, and, and again, those, the fears of, of experimentation and what effects it'll have on the business and how many people are actually going to come and do it is I think a very real one when it's, you know, it's your money on the line. It's your, 
name on the line, it's all your entire, the, the livelihood of all, your entire team on the line, you know, um, and how to make sure that people are coming in the door. So I think a lot of people definitely play it safe because of that. And I'm sure like a million other reasons, but um, for us, it's sort of, you know, trying to figure out how do we, how do we bring the familiar things while also making room for, for, you know, things that are maybe not, not as commonly known. Yeah. I mean, and how do we present those familiar things in a different way? I think that's something like, were you doing nixtamalized mango or something like that at your pop-up or on a dessert or something? There was just some like really interesting thing where you're like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> yeah. We were, uh, we were nixtamalizing papaya. Oh, papaya. So yeah. And I think we nixtamalized a bunch of fruit. So we nixtamalized the corn to cook and then grind to make the masa for the tortillas. Um, and I think through a series of just like boredom and, and knowledge of other chefs in Mexico doing certain things, we just started throwing different things into a pot that would have the, the slack lime in the water and just trying to see what, what happened. And the papaya just ended up having like an incredible texture. Yeah. Like I find that's not something you're going to find in any other Mexican restaurant around here. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and again, that kind of just goes back to our point of most of the menus that we find in the city and sometimes even beyond the city, unless you're going somewhere like New York or San Francisco, um, LA or Chicago, where the food scene tends to be a little bit more, I don't, I don't know if avant-garde is the word, but definitely a little more adventurous. Yeah, I mean, I, I was up at Cosme in October and that's not the kind of Mexican food you're seeing in most places. In the yeah. US. Like, I mean, I think if you don't know who the chef at Cosme is and you don't necessarily know what to expect when you walk in, the last thing you expect is for that place to be a Mexican restaurant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think to have that freedom um, and the platform to be able to execute something like that, I don't know. I mean, we hope and want DC to be there. Um, our hope is that we are able to get to a point where when we open the doors, people aren't expecting skulls, pink walls, sombreros, and, you know, endless chips and salsa, but rather coming in for a cultural experience of um, not just flavors, but also cooking techniques, um, ambiance, music, cocktails, um, service that are maybe not necessarily as portrayed or as expected from the places that are in the city currently executing Mexican food. So how did you first get involved in professional cooking? Did you, were you always, did you always love cooking? Did you have that story of growing up cooking with family and then no. working at little places <laughs> or how did you end up where you are now? Well, I, I grew up eating for sure. Um, I grew up in Mexico where our family, the family unit is very much still a thing. Um, Eating out is a thing you do for a special occasion, but on the day-to-day -day, breakfast, everybody gets together at the breakfast table. Everybody goes to work, goes to school. Um, if you work close enough to the house, which a lot of times you do, you come home for lunch, um, you see the family, leave again, come back after work, dinner. Everybody comes to dinner, and it's just a giant bounty of food. The entire family is there. It's very communal and very familial. Um, when we moved to the States, all of that spread out and it disappeared. 
Um, when we get to the States, um, 1992, my grandparents opened a, a small Mexican restaurant in El Paso, Texas. Um, so throughout like the end of my middle school and my high school years, I spent time at that restaurant, which is not a restaurant like we know them to be now. It was definitely a small family spot in a strip mall in the middle of like a really small town in Texas. Um, where I did everything from like sweeping floors, bussing tables, peeling shrimp, uh, washing dishes. And I, but I don't necessarily know that at those points I had any kind of correlation to what I was doing. I think it was just sort of like, this is what the family is doing. So these things need to get done. So go do them. Um, then after I left Texas, come up here, I was pursuing business administration mostly because that's my family wanted me to do that. Um, my family, besides the restaurant in El Paso, had food establishments in Mexico, like through the entirety of their lives. My grandfather uh, grew up in Merida, Yucatan. And he, I mean, from everywhere from helping out fishermen bring fish from the coast into restaurants to being maitre d' to being a, um, a sales rep for Bacardi um, to eventually owning and operating his own distribution of sugar in Mexico that dealt to um, liquor companies, Coca-Cola, uh, Bimbo, like all of the different places that need sugar um, in the region um, before the government took the sugar industry over. Um, so it was definitely always a very food centric um, house um, and Growing up, a lot of the business ventures my grandfather and my family took were often food related. Um, and when I got up here and I started working at the fund and the World Bank and um, these, you know, international organizations, where my family was pushing me to go was always out of born out of this like never work in a restaurant, having a better life. Yeah, like it's really hard work. Don't do what we did. <laughs> like do something better. Um, but after a certain amount of time being in a cubicle for five hours a day, it was just not my bag. Um, and then I started trying to explore what route I want to take and food sort of just started coming back into existence. Again, having no idea what working in a restaurant was other than that restaurant that we had, um, where I don't know if like. Some of some of the chefs that I had worked with early on had come into the, that kitchen. It would it would have been probably one of those like Ramsey's kitchen nightmare situations. Um, so once I started experimenting and started staging and taking culinary classes, um, the the challenge that it started providing and the the crazy intense structure that kitchens had that it was something I'd never seen before was what started drawing me in. Um, and eventually I just sort of had to make a, you know, had to, had to come to Jesus moment, had to make a decision. Do I leave a very well-paying job with benefits, controlled hours, um, nine to five and Monday through Friday to go make minimum wage for, you know, 13 hours a day in like a basement kitchen. Um, so like we were saying earlier, it sounded terrible. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, obviously yeah. that's the, the route I took. Um, 
And then, yeah, I, it just, you know, it, I don't know that I necessarily found cooking. I think it sort of found me. And I think uh, I, I tried through my growing up, I tried so many different things trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And this one was the one that sort of stuck. And, and what kind of kitchens were you working in? Were they um, kind of Eurocentric, French technique, kind of fancy places? Uh, when did... When did you know you want to stick with Mexican? Because, you know, you could have easily just started working at a place like the French Laundry and stay with that kind of cuisine forever. I could see the draw on that. So what kind of places were you staging and working at? Yeah. So the very, the very, very first restaurant that I staged, that I staged in here in D.C. was a place that is no longer um, called Hook out in Georgetown, um, where I've made some of my current and best friends. Um Shout out to Tom at St. and Andrew at Buford Saloon, <laughs> um, where that's sort of where I met them. And sort of like that was the very first kitchen that I'd ever walked into where I saw vegetables I'd never seen before. I saw fish that I'd never seen before. I saw people doing things with food that I'd never seen before. And it was just sort of like eye opening. One of the one of the conversations I had with someone early on, um, which I think was very, very helpful for me, was when trying to decide what kind of restaurant I, or what restaurant I needed to be in, um, was, um, the chef said to me, you know, figure out what the best restaurant in the city is and try to go work there because you can always work your way down, but it's much harder to work your way back up. So I figured that out. Um, and shortly thereafter, I found myself working at restaurant Eve in Alexandria, which was intense. It was a very, very intense environment. Um, a lot of people coming from French Laundry and per se. Um, and very paramilitaristic. Um, but, you know, I, at that point I was, I was a lot younger and I really wanted it. And it hurt real bad, but I kept showing up. <laughs> but that place, I think that place, if, if nothing else, it showed me a lot of... Um, it showed me a lot of work ethic. It showed me a lot of technique and a lot of what I've grown up to have of like how to move and exist inside of a kitchen environment. Shortly thereafter, I um, moved from there. I was, I was trying to, you know, kind of connect with my food. Um, Restaurant E was very American French, very French influence, the structure from the structure to the cooking. And working with that group, as I stayed with them, they started giving us more or giving me more liberty to work on specials and work with different ingredients and have a little bit more freedom as to what we were cooking. And as those doors started opening, um, my brain started going back to the food I grew up with. And I guess my question was always or started becoming, you know, I'm, I'm cooking all this food in a really intense way but I'd never seen Mexican food cooked or presented that way. Like anywhere. Like I was, I grew up in places where the Mexican food was on a brown plastic plate with a slop of like red rice, <laughs> a slop of beans and whatever your protein was. And it was delicious, but it was just, that was just sort of like across the board, what the food was. So going from that, perception of what food was to walking into a place where you're doing, you know, nine to 12 courses of like perfectly cooked, 
quails and perfectly cooked squabs to, you know, with like a jus and a sauce and a vegetable chip and a powder and a flour and very composed dishes, which I, you know, I think even in my wildest dreams before I got to work with that team, I had never imagined food was like that, you know? Um, so that opened up a lot of a vision for me, but that also opened up the need to start looking at Mexican food. So at that point, that's when I started kind of looking back at Mexico and trying to see what the food scene was down there, who the chefs were, who was doing things and what they were doing. Eventually that, um, led me to start exploring more restaurants in the city. And that's when I found Oyama. I went to go eat there and it blew my mind. It was. And how big were they at that time? Had they, I'm sure they had some notoriety, but were they as big as they are today? No, absolutely not. I think uh, probably TFG at that point was at the pinnacle of making this, this massive shift of going, I mean, Jose was already, at least a DC household name, if not, you know, international. Um, it was, the restaurants were still very, very locally run. Um, so the chefs, everybody had, you know, like pretty much oversight and responsibility for their own restaurants. Um, but as time has progressed and now they've become bigger, then it's become more of a, you know, a larger a restaurant group. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. So they have, they have more players into what goes in each restaurant. But when I got there, it was not only were they working with incredible technique um, and with a super talented team. Um, again, a lot, if not the majority of my kitchen friends, I've met and still hold really close and good relationships with. Either worked with me at PFG during my time or worked there before or worked there after or we have some sort of like connection of, to working with Jose and it sort of just started. I mean, to me, it was, it was, it was, it's an incredible, to me, it's always an incredible feeling walking into a kitchen, into a French kitchen and smelling chicken stock and corbouillon cooking in the morning. Like that smell of just like vegetable steaming for some reason, just like makes me lose my mind. It's amazing. But walking into a kitchen and smelling burning corn and chilies is life-changing so for me to go from something where i was learning to i mean definitely oml still learning but working with products and flavors and just ingredients across the board that i was familiar with was uh it was just exciting was, I, I had no idea about a lot of things you know and i mean even conversations with my family currently when we talk about the stuff that we cook and we say stuff like, oh, we're making mole. And then my grandmother or my mother will ask me what we're doing. And I'll say, you know, it's like a three-day process. And it's all these ingredients and this and that. And they both look at me like dumbfounded going like, you know, you can just buy this. <laughs> why, why are you doing this? Um, so I think it's a little bit difficult for them to correlate, you know, like the need to like really roll up your sleeves and get into the food. But when they eat it and they sit down with me and we talk about it, um, well, it goes one of two ways. It goes to, wow, this is really good. Or like, this is not Mexican food at all. <laughs> this isn't how we used to make it. But yeah, so then that's when I got to, when I got to OML, that's when I started really exploring and, and you know, lucky enough to be within a restaurant group that not only worked with a lot of really, really good talent, but also 
gave us the ability and the freedom to experiment and the resources to play around with food, um, cooking equipment, ingredients, whatever it was. Every time we were doing menu changes or seasonal changes was like, here's, here's what we're doing. What do you want to do with it? Which way do you want to take it? Do you need something? We'll get it for you. So. Yeah, the first time I ever had uh, insects were the grasshopper tacos there. You yeah. know, I think that's one of those things. If you're down, you have to try when you go there. And yeah. Oyama was literally the first restaurant I ever ate at when we moved here. We got here in 07, and I knew Jose from, you know, Spain and Abuli and all that. And I, I was super excited to eat one of his restaurants. And I went there and, uh, yeah, had a great meal. And I've been there a number of times. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of magical what they've what what they were able to do with the restaurants um no i mean oyml to me holds a big place not only because i you know cried and bled there for a while but also because it's i mean to me uh in washington dc it's like the if i think of somewhere to go taste authentic mexican flavors um that's where i think about going if i really want to go eat some like and you know regardless of how far and wide my cooking abilities are my eating habits are super simple and when i think of like what i want to eat what makes me really feel like i'm being hugged from the inside is really good beans <laughs> really good rice nice warm tortillas and um and some salsa so i i mean i could completely subsist for the rest of my life eating rice beans salsa and tortillas like that's it and where do you stand on tortillas do you feel you have to make your own tortillas and not necessarily like can you start with really good masa and make them and should you be i know it's not necessarily realistic in a small mom and pop but you know i, I kind of feel like a great tortilla really makes a taco or or your mexican food in a lot of places i just don't think are using really good tortillas yeah i mean i think one of the conversations we have continuously is you know when you go to an italian restaurant and they're making their pasta. It's a completely different experience, right? Or if you're having a sandwich and the bread is either baked in house or they're getting really good bread, it changes completely your experience of the sandwich. And the same, we see the same with masa. Do you have to? I don't think you have to. I think you, you create the experience that you're trying to create and everybody's artistic vision or chef vision is different and everybody puts up the best product that they know with the tools that they have. Right. Um, and even, even flour tortillas, like I, you know, I think flour tortillas have like a, a reputation or whatever, but the first time I made flour tortillas, I used Enrique Olvera's recipe. I was like, wow, this is like what a flour tortilla could be. I was just dumbfounded. Cause I don't think I'd ever had one. I don't know any place you see corn tortillas being made at some places, but I can't remember ever having had a flour tortilla that was homemade and I made them. And I thought, this is just like the greatest tortilla i had ever had it was amazing yeah and uh, i think it's a sad reality too i mean if you go if you go even in mexico um, because of <clears throat> i guess our current state and you know if you wanted to start getting like which we won't but if you wanted to start getting like political about it like everything you know drawn up from nafta and the way that you know big agro crops have you know, grown in Mexico and imports and exports of all of these things and how that's shaped the Mexican diet. Um, there's people, there's people living in Mexico, the birthplace of corn and the tortilla who have never had a tortilla made from fresh masa. Like they've grown up eating maseca, just like the dry flour, add water, make a tortilla, tortilla, or they're buying them at the shop because it's cheaper that way, or it's more accessible or, you know, a million, a million other reasons. So 
it's it's a little sad that you 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 exist in that place and you've never had one um let alone coming to the states where we live in a society of convenience yeah we're doing the uh, same here you know i grew up in new england and i think of like baked beans and my mom made a great one but most people didn't make baked beans like they just open a can of bush's baked beans and have them on saturday night with hot dogs and yeah. it's like there's generations of people who've never had real homemade baked beans when they're really not that hard. I mean, it's just time. You have to put them in a pot and give them like three hours, but you know, the same as doing good Mexican beans. Um, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who just open cans of beans for their refried beans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that I think I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain for worldwide, but I'm, if I had to make an assessment, I think worldwide um, people as a whole, are sort of walking backwards and this perceived notion of convenience of being able to like purchase something on the quick and just open a can or open a bag and just microwave it or quick up like heat it up quickly in a pot. It's making people afraid of food. People don't necessarily know how to cook and generations are being born into families that don't cook or can't cook or won't cook. And it just kind of breeds the cycle of the inability to, touch food and interact with it. I mean, I have, I have friends. Um, I'm, I'm going to be 40 next month. So I have friends in my age range that still to this day, like what they, what they have for dinner is like a can of SpaghettiOs. (laughs) Have you seen the packaged cut meat? So you don't have to touch raw meat like this thing now where it's like, you can buy like chicken cube and it's marketed towards like you don't have to get your hands all gross with raw meat. You just like peel back the pull easy lid and dump it right into a pot, you know, because yeah. nobody wants to touch raw chicken. Yeah. I mean, it's I, like just wash your hands and wash your cutting board, but yeah. they're really kind of marketing towards that. Even for people who are, who are going to be cooking, make it easy, but also make it less gross or interactive or whatever that word is you'd use to like, why you don't want to touch raw meat. Yeah. I, don't I mean, know. I think it's just like, you know, kind of like everything else is, you know, if you think about like war and everything else happening in the world, it's just a lot easier to turn the TV off, right? So yeah. you want to you, you want to eat the chicken, but you don't want to know that it was a chicken, that it came mm. from a farm, that it was killed. And that's one of my big, that's one of my big things. I cook a lot of organ meats, and you know, there's two camps on that. But you know, I'll post pictures on social media, and people push back, and I say like, you want to have a conversation? Like, let's not be hypocrites about this. I caught a lot of flack because last year the Frederick News Post ran an article about me and they, they didn't have time to shoot a headshot. And they said, we'll send in a photo. And I sent in a photo of me with this roasted pig's head I had done. And it's me leaning on a table with this pig's head. And they ran it in the paper. And they ran that article online. And the comment section went insane <laughs> about how vulgar it was, how provocative it was, how disgusting it was. And I spent three days in the comment section. People were like, you know the rule. Don't read the comments. Don't engage the trolls. I'm like, no. I'm going to use this as an opportunity <laughs> to have a very respectful conversation with people about meat eating and all that. And people come on and say, well, I'm vegan. I say, cool. I love vegan food. Like I was vegetarian for five years. Like I respect that. But if you eat meat, like why are you okay with eating, you know, a pork chop, but not a roasted pig's head? Like let's have that conversation. Right. Um, yeah. I spent four days uh, just answering comments on it. I don't know that I swayed anyone, but it felt good personally to have that conversation. <laughs> Life is- <laughs> my decision i a friend came over uh this past weekend and brought 40 pounds of organ meat for me so i was kind of excited because they got a, a cow custom butchered and they didn't want any of that so i got like tongue and liver and all that stuff and i'm super excited it's tasty stuff when you cook it right sure. i'm looking forward to cooking up that tongue yeah but i mean like 
Lengua is a totally normal thing in Mexican restaurants. People might not always know what it is if there's no translation there, but um, we went to Clavel recently in Baltimore, um, and I took my kids there. And my kids said they wanted beef tacos, and on the menu there's like no ground beef, and they didn't even have beef beef. The only option was lengua, so I just said, you know, yeah, two lengua tacos, and they came and the kids ate them, and they were fine with it. And after the fact, I told them, and they were still fine with it. You know, I think my kids handle that better than most grown adults around here. But yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the perception, and, you know, it's kind of like some of the grasshoppers, right? They're, they're just a protein. They're very much part of diet, but like a, a, a people, people with like entire people's diets that it's still current um, and not just in Mexico, you know, across the world, but it's the association that we have because of the, of the place that we live. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see how people are willing to, you know, eat and participate in certain things, but not, but don't want to face and or accept, you know, what the realities are of it and how it's becoming or how it's getting to their table. And I guess there's the fine line of educating your customer, but not being preachy. Cause I, I kind of walk that line a little bit. Like nobody really wants to be talked to or at, but I think you need to kind of have those conversations um, so figuring out a way to do that, um, you know, very quickly, just last week I had a customer who wanted like a dinner and they put that they didn't want ethnic food, you know, like, what is that? What does that mean? Like, is there any food that's not ethnic food? Cause they didn't want their food from their heritage. And what they meant is like very Eurocentric food. And we talked about this on the last podcast with our guests, you know, just, but just that idea of like, is that code for like no Brown person food or, and what they ended up wanting was like, filet mignon and you know like a nice salad with some cool stuff and like european food but they didn't say we want europe classical european food they didn't say we want french food um they said nothing distinctly ethnic which like breaks that what i say i like to cook is like i want to cook foods from mexico and thailand and the middle east and i'm kind of bored by having to cook like another filet mignon but pays the bills Yeah, I don't know. I think also it's just, you know, it's education and just knowing, knowing what to eat. You know, like I said, I grew up eating very, very basic form of food. And it was only because of like my own personal drive to want to learn more about it that I've gotten to learn more about it. But even to this day, I find cuisines and and foods that I've never seen before. So unless you're willing and open to trying those things, you're probably not going to find them. Um, I think it's sort of like on us as chefs and restaurateurs and, you know, people in the food scene uh, and whatever community that we're in to educate the public and, you know, let them know and have conversations, maybe not four days worth of comment section conversations, (laughs) but, uh, I only do it in my off time, (laughs) but, uh, but definitely having conversations with the public of, you know, sure. I mean, you know, it's really good, but language really good. Also beef cheeks really good. Also, you know, awful is really good. So it's just a matter of of presenting the food in a way that's more palatable. And, you know, I think people just have these perceptions of things just being gross because they've never had it. Um, you know, like, you know, you said your kids had lengua. They probably didn't think twice about it. They're like, this is great. And they ate it. And the flavors were there. We have conversations about how kids don't eat vegetables when they're kids. And that's sort of the stigma. But it turns out that kids don't like vegetables when they're kids because mom overcooks the crap out of the carrots (laughs) or there's no salt in it or it's not fresh and it's out of a can. And, you know, like 
Adults don't even. We let our kids run wild with the condiments. Like right now, they're on uh, a period with the Valentina hot sauce, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like, we just put a bottle on. If my daughter doesn't want to eat whatever, like she'll ask if she can get hot sauce. It's like, you can always get hot sauce. Like, I don't even care if it's pizza. If you're going (laughs) to eat it with hot sauce, cool. And we have like a whole variety of hot sauces in the fridge. And they love that tagine seasoning. You know, they call it taki seasoning because it tastes like the chips. But we we have that on the lazy Susan on our table. And the kids are allowed to get up and season their food. So we, go a little milder on some things and then just whatever condiments if they want to get a whole grain mustard a hot sauce some spice last night my son wanted to sprinkle cumin on his dinner cool you know um and just let them kind of experiment with flavors and see what they like yeah it's beautiful yeah i mean kids should should have access to those things and i don't know if it's again just society or you know laziness or you know general life fatigue and exhaustion um, and the ability to just, again, just buy a can of something and put it on the table that makes people go that route. Um, but you know, like everything else, the, the easy way is, is not necessarily always the best way. Yeah. And I'm sure the kind of sidebar on education, I'm sure another thing you're going to be tackling is cost. I mean, I'm sure you're no a stranger to the whole thing that Mexican food's supposed to be cheap, right? And the, you know, right. tacos are $3. So why is this, why is your taco $12 or whatever? And it's kind of the plight of the high-end Mexican restaurant, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, your tacos can be $3, but that also means that the kind of meat that we're using yeah. is going to justify that price. The kind of tortillas that we're using is going to justify that but, price. I love Taco Bamba and I'm amazed at the prices that they're able to charge for their tacos too. You go in yeah. there and you think like, Wow, I would have paid a lot more for for their tacos as well. Yeah, well, I think what Taco Bamba has going for them is that all of all of their braces are super flavor packed. Yes. Um, and you know, going back to the tortilla, maybe they're not making the tortillas, but you almost don't even really think about the tortillas because every time you take a bite, you're getting like yeah. punched with flavor. It's yeah. not just like bland food. It's not just sort of like here's a tortilla, here's some food. There's so many places that I've eaten at in the district and outside of this area where people make a Mexican restaurant or a Mexican eatery. And it's sort of like, we'll buy the stuff, we'll put lettuce on it and some like pico de gallo and boom, you have Mexican food, but then there's no seasoning, no flavor, like just no, no correlation to like the roots or the history or like what the dish actually is, you know, they'll put stuff on the menu and have no idea what, like what they're cooking or why it's called that. Or if you've been, what they're calling one thing is really what they're putting out there. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Bamba has had uh, a really, really good luck with, with making sure that their formula stays true and stays consistent and they've seen a lot of growth and they're being super, super successful doing it. And then you have interesting things like, not that they're not making money, but is it somewhat of a loss leader for their high up, you know, then they have a more formal dining experience next door. And is that the kind of gateway where you get someone in for a $3 taco that's delicious? And then you think, oh, well, they also have like a taco omakase, you know, their other restaurant. And I don't know, maybe it builds like kind of customer loyalty or brand awareness in some respect, too, because you do see that with some places kind of having like the higher end restaurants and then the less expensive ones as kind of gateways. I don't yeah, know. well, I think it's. I think it's just like the nature of the beast, right? Um, restaurants are notoriously very risky situations and they're very expensive to run from labor to food to keeping the lights on. I mean, you name it, you're just, you're spending money. I think it's the only industry that works backwards from all the other industries where you're allowed to start up in your garage with like cardboard boxes and a Sharpie 
Um, and when you open a restaurant, you're expected to full front like $1.5 million and wow everyone with everything you've got. Yeah. Um, so I think, and you know, a lot of restaurant groups, like I think it's a smart thing to do. And if you have the, the means and the capability to do it, to have like one of the places bring home the bacon and one of the places be your place where you get to do what you want to do and the, and put, you know, the story that you're trying to put on the plate, which not necessarily is always a money-making, like sound business decision. So I guess that brings me to opening a restaurant. You're trying to actively open a restaurant. And uh, I want to just find out kind of how that's going and some of your challenges and where you're at with that and what you need. <laughs> oh, what I need. That's, uh, that's, a, long, that's a long list. Um, well, we are in the process of trying to find a new space. We spent the better part of the last 12 months uh, pursuing a space um, that uh, I think we hit a point where it was both starting to become a little expensive for us to, to continue pursuing. And uh, we had to sort of just make the decision of like, after a certain amount of time is like, do we keep do we keep pushing with this or do we, you know, is it time to take a step back and, and regroup and, and see what our next step is? That's sort of where we're at. <laughs> we're, we're regrouping right now. We spent, uh, we spent a good amount of time pursuing this and with it comes not just, you know, pursuing the, the project, but everything involved with it, which is putting the product out there, courting investors, uh, networking within the industry, um, and figuring out how to do all of those things full time without having a full time job commitment and still somehow being able to eat and pay the rent and, you know, get gas in the car and get to and from every event. It's taxing uh, financially, emotionally, <laughs> spiritually. Um, is, it, is it hard finding investors? Uh, yes, it's very hard finding investors. I think it's just from speaking to everyone. Um, we've been really lucky in our process uh, of pursuing this, that we have a really good network of uh, very successful people in the industry that we've been able to reach out to and have sort of held on our side whenever we've had questions or doubts, then everyone's been super open with us. But any, any of them will tell you that getting the money is the hardest part, unless you've got the bank account to support it or you take the less traditional route or maybe more traditional route, I'm not sure, um, of going to the bank and taking a loan out for yourself, having to ask strangers for large amounts of money and a market that is as saturated as DC um, is very difficult, uh, particularly for a first venture. Does, does any part of it being a Mexican restaurant, you think, weigh into that? Or being someone from Mexico, are they more likely to fund a... French restaurant or an Italian restaurant um, or it's just like the nature of the beast and anyone. Yeah. I think, challenges? I think it's like, I think it's depending on your, I think it's depending on your network and your product. Um, obviously people that are investing money want to have the safest route to go. Um, I think for a lot of people also, I don't know from someone that's not in the industry, that's trying to put money in something that sounds more financially viable to them might be, opening something like that's super bar heavy and it's just cranking out 
food that's low cost and the experience and, you know, everything that we try to put in as restaurateurs and chefs to create this experience isn't necessarily something that they factor or really care much about. Yeah. I can't imagine investing money in a restaurant if I wasn't in the business, you know, like I, I do it cause I love it, but I mean, they are notoriously harder to make a profit on. And I'm sure there are other business models that you can make money on that are not a restaurant. And I just had money to put somewhere. I don't know that I would invest in a restaurant that wasn't mine. So yeah. I'm sure that's an uphill battle. Yeah. That's an uphill battle. Um, we, I mean, we hit, we've talked to, we talked to a, a million people of all different backgrounds. Um, and one of the things that, one of the biggest things, the conversations that we had or kept coming up was, and, and often one of the very first things was, you know, what about your friends and family around? Are, you know, how, how much have you raised through that? Um, and for me as a, as a first generation immigrant, you know, um, and this happens to a lot of people is that we're the ones sending money back home. Like we, like I'm, I make my paychecks and portion of that goes back home. So me asking my close friends and family is like something so unrealistic for me to like be able to gather, I mean, $5,000, let alone 30,000, 40,000 to $100,000. That's just something that at least in my life will not happen. Maybe other people have different access to different things. So when people ask us like, why, where's your friends and family stuff? Like what, what does that look like? And we're like, well, we, we are the friends and family. Is there an <laughs> like, industry standard for like what that should make up? Is there kind of a formula that like 30% of your money should be friends and family? Like, I don't know anything about that kind of yeah. stuff. Or I mean, I don't know that there is a formula. Obviously I think investors would want to see a big chunk of that mm-hmm. come in. You know, obviously, the more skin you got in the game, the more safe everyone's going to feel. The less money they have to give you, the more safe they're going to feel. But I don't know. I mean, we've we talked to so many people and quite literally every single person investor that we spoke with had a different suggestion or advice for of how to do it. So we didn't really see any like standards where, you know, we talked to person A and person B and they were like, oh, right. They said the same thing. It was always like, oh, you should do it like. You know, you you start with step one and then you go to step two. And it's going to be frustrating to not have a consensus. I think it would be. Yeah. I mean, that was for us. That was one of the most difficult parts trying to like go back and regroup. And then, you know, like we have to pitch to a new person. It's just like, I mean, do we go with like what we know? Do we go with what the last person told us? Do we know we'll go with what like the person that actually is writing a check already to us said? Like which, which one is the winning thing here? But I think for us. The thing that we found to be more successful was just to do what we do. Um, I'm not sure if it's a, an investor thing or or what, but I think at a certain point, particularly people that are successful in business, um, or maybe maybe it's just human nature, right? Like we all want to believe that we are always making the the rightest decision out of all of the decisions to be made. So when we talk to people and we either ask questions. Like I think when we first started, we we did open the doors for suggestions, and we we would ask for advice. We would ask questions when we we're talking to investors. But we definitely got to a point where we we're like, dude, we're not looking for like your advice. Like this is what we're doing. <laughs> we're opening a restaurant. <laughs> we need this much money. Are you in or are you out? But at a certain point, like you know, especially when you're sort of like still kind of navigating like what it looks like, and you're not necessarily like 
feeling super confident about what the conversations are going to go because you've never done it. You're you open yourself up to like stuff and you start thinking about it, you internalize it, yeah. and you process it, and you try to make the best decision out of that. But then you get to a point where you're doing it so much and you're having to talk to so many people and you know your time starts getting so limited and you're, you're exhausted. Like you're just like, hey, like <laughs> yeah. I thank you, thank you for what you're saying. But this is what we're doing. I'm sure one of the things that can make you successful is being unique or new or different. But that's the more riskier thing. So I'm sure people who are looking to invest already want to look at existing business models that are working and generating revenue. But that may right. be, you know, the, the playing the safe route isn't necessarily going to be the thing that makes you successful. Yeah. So I'm sure that's challenging if you're trying to do something newer or different. And I don't know if it's a, a strong suit or a, or a weak point in also in society and in it, you see it across the board with everything. It's like the chicken or the egg, right? I mean, even when you look at people trying to find jobs and they're like, well, we want someone with a year's experience. And it's like, well, no one will get me a job so I can't get the experience. <laughs> yeah. So how does this work? The same with cooks. You know, it's like looking at experience versus none. You know, I'm at the point where I actually would rather hire someone with no experience and train them the way I want. But from a corporate standpoint, if you work for a company, they say they want a degree, you know, so I can't yeah. tell you how many like chefs I've hired from culinary schools that come in and they're terrible. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a lot better luck with an 18 year old who had never worked in a restaurant, right. but the company stance is we want you to hire someone with a culinary degree, right. you know, and it's just, it's kind of hard, you know, it's, I think the schools have a big part of playing that <laughs> because, and I don't know if this is on every industry, but definitely from seeing culinary school and talking to people coming from different schools, they don't. They don't teach you what one what life after school is yeah. going to look like once you leave with your with your diploma and your two years or associates or bachelors, whatever you did from the CIA or Johnson Wales or you know you name it the plethora of schools that are out there. And you know we see it, and that, and you know we get kids that are like, oh, I just graduated, so I want like I'm here for the executive sous chef position <laughs> that don't necessarily know how to saute something yeah um and i think that's just uh, something that i don't know if it's instilled in on purpose or sort of just insinuated where they sort of build this false sense of confidence in people um i think to a certain degree when i started out i maybe felt a little bit like that just because of what school had like put on but then you get out on the field and you're like in the middle of the battle and you don't know how to use your rifle. So I, like, I, oh, wait. I, I went to Johnson Wells. I have a four-year bachelor's. I graduated in 98. And I think at the time they are saying, like, you can start at up to $100,000 a year. I have never made $100,000 a year. <laughs> like, I got out of culinary school in 1998, and I'm still waiting for that $100,000 a year <laughs> they were talking about. But they talk about, you know, like a 98% placement rate, and some of our graduates are making $100,000 their first year out. I want to know who those people are. <laughs> But that's the kind of thing they're selling you this dream that I don't think is really attainable. It's like I want the like the thing like results are not typical warning at the bottom of that statement to say, you know, like when they're the diet thing, like this woman lost 400 pounds. It's like results, not typical. It's more yeah. like 25 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. They're selling you the food network, right? They're selling you that dream. They're yeah. selling you that you're going to be able to cook and and be this like person. But I mean, the reality is, like, can you do it? Sure. Like, I mean, I think anyone's capable of doing that if that's the avenue you want to pursue. But you're going to have to eat some shit in the process. Like, yeah. and if you're not willing to, like, put in the time and put in the work and be able to, like, take some hits and get back up every time you get them, you're definitely not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to stay in the industry for a long time, let alone get on, like, that level. And that's what builds the 
you know, all the experience brought you to this place where you are now, I believe, you know, it's like, if I started even higher, I don't think I'd be as successful as I am now, like on my own and in my own right. So what's next um, for building to get to where you want to be? Are you going to continue to do pop-ups? Uh, I know you've had a couple things here and there. I saw, was it last week you did like a breakfast taco pop-up? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did. Uh, we teamed up with the guys at Sun Cinema and uh, our friends at Second Breakfast that do like vintage fashion pop-ups. Uh, and we had, I think it was over beers that we had been talking about doing something breakfasty. Um, and together, and the opportunity just arose, and we just sort of slept at table together and made scrambled eggs and sold some clothes and drank some Bloody Marys. It was super fun. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Do you see more formal type dinner pop-ups, like small scale, like you were doing a district space or like one night only, anything on the horizon? Or yeah. Take yeah. it as it comes. Yeah, I mean, right now, <clears throat> definitely take it as it comes. Like, it's, I'm not sure if I mentioned it uh, or not, but, you know, we're, we're all, the team's very much still consulting and, and doing work everywhere. So our schedules are, and ideas and events are very contingent on, on where we're at currently. But yeah, I mean, we're definitely doing private events. Um, the, the one we're excited about is happening in March, which is for Woodmore Super Club, which is um, Kylie from Mission Michelin. Mm -hmm. who I just saw that a couple of days ago. Yeah. And she started, she came to one of the pop-ups um, and we met at one of the pop-ups and then she just, she's actively come to pretty much everything that we've done. Um, and she just had this idea to like bring us along to cook at the house. And we did. And after we did that, that sort of just snowballed into her just doing that, I think as a monthly thing. Um, so we were the first ones there and to commemorate their year anniversary of doing that, we're going to be doing the year anniversary at our house. That's um, exciting. Yeah. And how, it, many, how many people can come to that? I don't know. I think the first one, when we did it, it was very like, sort of like glued together. Yeah. Um, and I think we had about 12 people. Yeah. That's what I've done with my pop-ups. I still like that idea of like a curated dinner party where it's just like 15 people where it's controlled and you can have like a really good time. Yeah. And then from there, like, I mean, she's had everyone there. Mm -hmm. I think like Eric Greener Yang was just there. Uh, Aaron Silverman was just there. I don't know. Like a, a ton of people. I think Johnny Spiro was there. Like there's yeah. like all, all these chefs from around the city all of a sudden are cooking at. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. The other day, I think it was like you and three others. She announced what the next couple ones were. I thought, wow, like that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really great. Um, she's basically selling the tickets to the people that come and all the money's going to, to the teams uh, who are coming and putting on the show, which is, which is a great event. Um, it not only brings business to the, to the restaurants and the chefs, but it supports, you know, what everyone, what, what she believes in. She's very much in the restaurant scene. She does a really good job at being present and, and supporting everyone. Awesome. Do you have anything else you really kind of want to talk about uh, before we finish up this like middle end and head on to the speed round? No, this was great. I think we got it. We got it all out. Cool. Well, we'd like to finish with a, a quick, we, we call it the uh, on the fly. So if you're ready, it doesn't have to be super quick, but um, here's some questions. So what's your favorite tool in the kitchen? Favorite tool in the kitchen? Sharp knife. Okay. What's your favorite food to eat? 
favorite food to eat? Rice and beans and tortillas. Okay. If you had all the money, uh, what is the first position you would hire? Like right now, if you could hire anyone, what position would that be? Uh, if I could hire anyone, the position I would hire would be my sous chef because I already know who it is. <laughs> you need to get some money. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite chef? Uh, I mean, that's sort of like a contextual thing, like locally. Globally. Yeah, either, either. Like someone who you're interested in uh, what they're doing or someone you've worked for. I think someone that I admire a lot on, on the big end. I mean, obviously, Jose, who's was, you know, my chef, but also is hyper inspiring and more aspects than just the kitchen with all the humanitarian and activist stuff that he does. Um, Gabriela Camara, who does Contramar and Kala in San Francisco, who's done an incredible job of sort of like gone from being like a home cook to like running this super, super successful um, restaurant group. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have like my my local heroes that I look up to and I'm, I'm very excited to know and work next to and provide a lot of um, inspiration and support um, like Andrew Markert from Bugert Saloon, Tom Kanana from Bad Saint. Um, yeah, those, I mean, those, that's like my, my core group of people. Um, James Rexford of Bucks, uh, which is right next door to where we're at right now. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's a long list. We could list them, but um, DC has a, an incredible network of people that really look out for each other. And yeah. we're lucky to be here. I agree. Uh, art or science? Art. Is there anything you do differently from everyone else? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny going into kitchens and, you know, doing things the way that I do them. And there's always sort of like, either the young cooks are looking at me doing things different than how chef is doing them and going like, what? Or chef walking by going like, the hell are you doing? That's not how we do it. So yeah, I think everyone, everyone sort of develops their own style and technique and the way they do things, but there's, you know, more, more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a million things I, I do differently, I suppose. Do you have a favorite culinary resource, whether it be cookbook, website, magazine? Like, what do you, anything you really turn to for inspiration? Um, well, I used to really like the Lucky Peach magazines before they shut down. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for me, most of my most of my inspiration comes from cookbooks. My cookbook collection grows, uh, which it shouldn't. It's a bad problem. <laughs> Um, same here, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's, I just, I look at the chefs that, um, that I really enjoy and that I, I, I find interesting and exciting in what they're doing. And I look at their restaurants and first I start with looking at their menus and see what they're doing. And then I look to see if they have a cookbook and reach out for it and then read it, not just buy it, but like read it, really, really read it like a, like you were reading a novel from cover to cover. That's interesting. So many of them are like that. Now it used to be just this kind of, here's a recipe, here's a recipe. And then it was like, here's a recipe and some pictures. And now it's reading the books. I have a lot of those that I like. I love um, the relay cookbook, you know, and it's like, um, I don't think I've ever even made anything out of it, but just like reading a thing on like water and being thoughtful about, you know, what's your water taste like? Is there a water filter? Everything you make is made with water, right. you know, and just kind of reading that kind of stuff in a book and then not even making anything from it. So I have a lot of those. I think the Man Race book is kind of like that. I've read it a lot, but haven't made anything from it. Yeah. I mean, it's continuing education, right? It's, yeah. I mean, it's, 
some of the best learning that I've done, aside from being on the job, mm-hmm. has come from reading. Especially now working alone, essentially. You know, that's the boat I'm in, where I'm not going in a kitchen every day and having that synergy and working with people and seeing what they're doing and trying their stuff. So it's like, how do you kind of find that inspiration when you're working by yourself? Yeah. Um, well, for me, I know what, what helps a lot is, you know, reaching out to my restaurant network, um, whether it is because I'm coming in to fill in when they need help or just reaching out and saying, hey, I want to come spend a day with you. But staging, man, staging yeah. is still a very much real thing and something that I think people appreciate if you're able to come in and help out. Every time you leave after spending, you know, eight hours with a with a kitchen team, you leave with something new every yeah. time. And I guess last, what do you want to be remembered for? That's we put this in the on the fly. <laughs> and I don't know if it's on the fly, but we always kind of like end on that note. Is is there anything you uh personally as a chef? Uh, want to be remembered for? Um, I think broadening the expectation and the and the knowledge base for the public of what Mexican food is, and also for being able to help out um, the Latin American immigrant communities in our in our area that make up the large majority of kitchens in mindful and meaningful ways beyond just giving them jobs, but really helping build them up into uh, places where their their livelihoods and their and their economies are sustainable for them. That's a good answer. So where can people find you uh, on the internet? Uh, how, how can people connect with you, follow your progress on the restaurant and everything? Um, where our, well, our website is sort of uh, a work in progress. Um, but most of the news come out, uh, as, as we get them, uh, on our Instagram for Amparo, it's at Amparo Fondita, A-M-P-A-R-O-F-O-N-D-I-T-A, or my personal Instagram account, uh, which is Pinche Cocinero, it's at P-I-N-C-H-E-C-O-C-I. N-E-R-O. And I always uh, put links in the show notes, so people will be able to find that and just click on a hyperlink. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, and I look forward to following the progress. And as always, this is Chris with Chefs Without Restaurants, and we will see you next week. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.